and that's what we finally realized after a while is that God had put us in a perfect place to do this mission. Like that actually was why I think he put me on the earth because um, all of that kind of perfectly worked together. And that's what we finally realized is that why that's where God wanted me to serve, not necessarily some someplace else. You're listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street, where real people working in the finance industry talk about life, work, and faith, with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. I'm here with David Kim, who is the co-head of investor relations at Apex Partners. Is that true? That's right. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Nathan. I want us to go back to 1988 when you graduated from West Point. Right. And then the year later, you ended up in Panama. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, in fact, uh, 88, 30 years ago, almost exactly, we just had our 30-year right. reunion. And it's been amazing to see uh, a lot of things that classmates have done since then. But we were, uh, I was part of an Army unit based out in California, 7th Infantry Division, that was sent down to Panama Originally to do uh, sort of peacekeeping and guardianship of our citizens down there. There are a lot of citizens who uh, lived in the canal zone that are servicing the canal. And um, they were being harassed uh, mm. by Noriega and his troops. He was kind of using the U.S. as a foil and quote unquote uh, external threat to rally his own you know political base and mm. kind of justify his despotic action. So we were sent down there originally to do that. And uh, and then in December, his troops killed a uh, American officer at a checkpoint, and that uh, really had escalated the the tensions that had been boiling up ever you know over the preceding months. And so President Bush at that point decided to remove him from power. Very interesting. I mean, it it, it seems like an important thing. I don't remember learning much about this when it happened. Yeah. Um. So I mean, it was a big deal to you because you were sent down there. Yeah. Um, but there's not much mention of it necessarily now in U.S. history. Right. But it was an important little, um, or big, I don't know, was it bigger little project you guys went on? Yeah. It was, it was Operation Just Cause. And uh, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it was uh, sort of a footnote mm. in history. It, it uh, The fighting lasted less than a week. and uh, But I don't know, I suppose okay. for a, no battlefield small to a person who's in it. That's right. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately, there were 23, I believe, soldiers and uh, so forth that got killed wow. in the invasion and uh so we were on the ground and we were part of that and um when we kicked off that that operation a little bit later in our conversation i want to ask you maybe some some things that happened mm-hmm. uh to you with some some of the relationships you had there that impacted your philanthropic work now right but let's get to that a little bit later take me now to your west point experience what was that like yeah west point was uh I'm very glad I went there, and it, it was an incredibly formative experience, as you might imagine, and um, it's got an incredible place in my heart and is just a part of who I am, uh, but it was at the same time an extremely tough experience, and it's funny. My son now is a plebe, a first year right. at West Point, yeah. and what we learned is that they've shifted the model to, I think, a much more rational model than, <laughs> it, used, than it used to be. It was explicitly an attrition model. Mm. When I went through, now it's a developmental model. Uh-huh. So as you think about developmental, that makes sense. When you get a platoon, you're a leader, you're going to go take them to combat, you don't just grind them down, mm-hmm. right? you got to build them up, even if they are weak in some respects, and, and you have to figure out a way to lead them and, and get the best out of them. You know, when I went through West Point, it was uh, it was tough. 
and it was sort of just, you know, they throw you in the pool, and if you drown, bye-bye. And uh, so we started out with 1,400 people. I think we graduated a little bit over 900. And, and you graduated with honors, isn't that right? Yeah, I did, yeah. So you were you were fortunate to work hard enough and find that inner grit and rise to the top. Yeah, not everybody could. Yeah, yeah, fortunately, but um, but it was it was a wonderful experience. I got to say, my best friends are people I went to West Point mm-hmm. with, um, the um, you know people I served in the army with, and the lessons I learned there, the character building, um, leadership, and so forth. It was just incredibly transformative. As as tough as the experience was it was really really good for me so mm-hmm. uh, i was glad to be graduated but i would I'll if bet. i had to i would do every single day over again wow yeah well tell me about your family of origin and how did west point even come on to your imagination to go there uh so i grew up in virginia my uh mother is a school teacher she taught high school orchestra so she's a musician and my dad um, was a journalist at um at cornell so he wrote for the Science Journal there. Okay. Uh, he was a Korean immigrant. They met mm-hmm. after the war, and he immigrated to the United States. And then, But then they split up when I was, I think, mm. two. So I, I hardly ever saw him. Um, but uh, I grew up down in Virginia. And um, so I grew, you know, growing up in northern Virginia, a lot of West Pointers around. So okay. I, I was sort of exposed to it through that. My grandfather was a Civil War history professor. Right. So, of course, Civil uh, West Point played a huge role in that. And uh, for me personally, it was, you know, I wanted to serve the country. I wanted to be in the military. We got a long line of folks who've served. You know, uh, my, grand, my dad fought in Korea. We've got people all the way back through the Civil War. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And it was also, also a good way for me to get out of a tough situation, you know, mm-hmm. at home. Because right. it's a full scholarship and mm-hmm. so you can have a measure of independence at a very young age. So it was sort of in the air in Northern Virginia, sort of in your blood from your um, dad and, and grandfather yep. and so forth. Yeah. So it made sense. And, and then when you started thinking about going there, was that a daunting proposition did, or did it feel like a calling? I mean, just tell me about the sort of the emotional anticipation of going there. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, I was called to it from a very young age. Mm. I mean, I think from the age of around sixth grade, I decided that's where I was going. Oh, wow. And so... Uh, I was just totally consumed by it and directed all my efforts at it. And so fortunately, I got in, and um, that was the only college that I actually ever applied to because I applied early decision, got in, that nice. was it. So, <laughs> Well, as you know, my father-in-law is also a West Point grad, 1972, yeah. and my best friend growing up is a, a 2001 grad. So it's near and dear to my heart as well. And I have a, I guess I would call it a bit of an awe and reverence for the institution always have as soon as I learned about it. So I, I give you a lot of respect and I'm happy that your son is there as well. And it's interesting what you were saying about how it's sort of a different program now, yeah. more developmental and that's more rational. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I echo what you said. I mean, I have a lot of love and reverence for the place as well. And it's just yeah. it, being at my reunion just reminded me that it's built on not like people like me, but it's built on the people that, you know, render a lifetime of service to the nation. I have yeah. classmates that, I've been in the military for 30 years. They're, they're generals. They have huge jobs. Uh, they've deployed, probably added up over five years in total. Um, we add all their deployments downrange to wow. Iraq and Afghanistan in combat since 911. You know, that's a massive sacrifice. It's a massive sacrifice for their families. Of course, there's yeah. been a lot of people that have died, you know, in combat. There's been a lot of people that have been, you know, permanently uh, disfigured and, you know, wounded and so forth. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, those are the people that, that built West Point. Wow. 
What was your faith like when you were a West Point cadet? Uh, you know, I was a Christian. I was, you know, in sort of a head Christian, I call it, not a heart Christian, mm-hmm. not a not a Christ follower. But yeah, I was raised, um, you know, in the Methodist church. My mom played the organ, uh, but as a consequence of that, she had to play three services on a Sunday, and, you know, we didn't have any money for babysitting, so I would be there you stuck at church for three services on a Sunday, so I wasn't exactly happy about it, and so... <laughs> I couldn't run away fast enough, so I don't think okay. I, maybe I went to church like twice when I was at West Point. Okay. And, uh, and you know, after I got out, you know, I was in the service and stuff, I kind of just walked away from the faith for a mm-hmm. long time. Well, I know that that's not true now, so tell me, how did the journey change then for you? Well, I, I think I, I always, uh, I always, you know, felt that calling. I kind of knew, uh, sort of. Uh, you know, that little quiet voice, right? It was mm-hmm. always there. Mm-hmm. So Holy Spirit, don't leave you alone, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and my grandmother had very, very strong faith, and she kind of kept talking to me about it. And she kept saying, you know, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I remember thinking, like, well, I don't know what that is. Is that like some kind of hillbilly thing or, <laughs> or what? <laughs> I don't understand that. Um, but then uh, I'd say, you know, wind forward many years later, you know, we would, my wife and I would go to church, we'd kind of mm-hmm. check the box, mm-hmm. you know, but we didn't have that heart relationship. And I'd say after going through a number of different experiences that were pretty tough in our marriage and our personal circumstances, you know, you kind of, I got, got to the point where I was kind of feeling that much stronger call to faith at the same time, mm-hmm. spending more time sort of reading about it. And our things kind of came together, you know, in 2009 when, when 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 I got saved, you know, hmm. and then I understood. You know, Can you tell day. us about that experience? Yeah, sure. So um, it was kind of a confluence of events, you know, with having a tough time in our marriage, having a tough time in my professional life, you know, at the same time doing a lot of reading and so forth. So I was reading Purpose Driven Life, mm-hmm. and I just finished that book. And at the end of it, he was saying, you know, now all you got to do is just, you know, like, your purpose is to be, you know, with Christ and to do his will. And so you just have to ask him into your life. And then I remember we watched uh, a movie. It was uh, Flywheel, those brothers in Georgia that mm-hmm. made those movies. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so we watched that, and that was incredibly moving. And so Cynthia and I just got down on our knees, and I prayed that prayer. And I wow. felt like this physical warm sensation, you know, come over my body. Hmm. And and then I understood. It was like what St. Paul said, right? The scales fell yep. from my eyes and looked at the world in a completely different way. And yeah, that's just the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you flip a right. switch and all of a sudden now you're a good Christian, but at least you want to be on the path, and that's when you start. I want to talk about that more, and yeah. I want to talk about how that affects how you lead your family and your philanthropic work. But let's go back for a moment, um, back to these late 80s and early 90s years. Mm-hmm. You then went to Harvard Business School after right. some time in the Army. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I decided that I wanted to you know, move on from the service, and I went to uh, the Harvard Business School. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get accepted there. And uh, so it was a great transition for someone coming from uh, a world that had nothing to do with business. My mother's mm-hmm. a school teacher. My dad was kind of in the journalist. And hmm. so I knew nothing about business. And coming from the army didn't really teach you that much about business either at, at West Point and so it was kind of more math science and engineering so I just I just walked around to everybody at business school I was like what do you do what is that mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> tried to learn about different career paths and that's kind of heard, heard about private equity so you've been doing private equity ever since you graduated Harvard Business School that's correct yeah since 94 
explain to me what is private equity? I, I say, you know, in the most simple terms, private equity is basically like buying a house that you're going to fix up and try to make a profit on okay. at the end of the day. And so just like when you buy a house, you've used your savings, that's your equity, yeah. to buy the house mm-hmm. and you uh, get, get a loan to supplement sure. your savings to be able to afford that house. We do the same thing. And you do your research about the neighborhood that the house is in mm-hmm. and try to find, you know, a good neighborhood that's kind of going the right direction, not going the wrong direction. And you try to find a house that's, you know, reasonably priced Then kind of depends what your objectives are. But if you want to make money, you probably want to find one that's maybe maybe a little banged up, not a wreck, mm-hmm. not a burned out Hulk, right? Mm-hmm. But but something it's that needs some improvement. Bones. Yeah, good bones, yeah. but you need to fix it up and yeah. put some more money into it and some hard work to try to make it better. And then you can sell it for a higher price because you've made it into a higher quality asset at the end of the day and, and uh, do that in about four or five years. So the metaphor is the house, but what you're actually talking about is businesses. You buy and sell companies. Exactly. So we buy and sell companies, but it's the same exact concept. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the equity comes from pensioners and, and people don't really realize that per se, right. but it's a pension fund for the state of California teachers or so forth. A lot of public pension money for public employees some private pension money as well from, you know, corporations, Fortune 500 co- uh, corporations that we raise the money from. And they give us a, a certain amount of money that we can spend and we'll use that to buy 25 companies. And we'll use some, some debt on top of that to be able to buy those 25 companies. And if we can make a profit on those 25 companies as we sell them, and it takes about 10 years to kind of invest okay. and fully sell all 25 of those companies, so it's a very long-term game, then we then we keep a portion of the profits. So you, we're talking about a large amount of equity, a large amount of money that you have invested at any given time. Right. W- what is the size of that pool of money right? Like that Apex currently has invested? It's uh, $9.5 billion is our current fund that we're investing right now. $9.5 billion with a B. Yeah, yeah. That you're exactly. investing in 25 companies. Is that what yeah. you just said? Yeah, more or less. Exactly. And you're you're fixing them up kind of like you do a fixer upper house. Yeah. You're going to sell them. Now you said something very interesting that um, it's pension funds. And so sometimes I, I have a hard time communicating to people who don't live around the Wall Street scene that there is a connection in the overall economy to to their lives, you know, and to Wall Street, you yeah. just made that connection very simple for us. If you have a pension, if you're retired or saving up for retirement through a pension fund, guess what? Private equity is a large part of how you're going to get paid in retirement. It is. It is. And it's it. private equity has outperformed the public markets over the long term on mm. a very consistent basis. And that's why pension funds invest in private equity. Now, p- private equity does charge higher fees than your average mutual fund, okay. but the, the, at net-net, after all fees and expenses, private equity returns are higher okay. than what you would get through mutual funds and in the, in the public markets, by and large, and as an asset class over the long term. And so that's why these pension funds have in, consistently invested in private equity, because they can get better net-net returns at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, for their money, which helps the pensioners. And in turn, that helps take pressure off of the state budgets because you know, the pension obligations are fixed, and right. you can make it either two ways, through your investment returns or higher taxes because right. the state has to pay those hmm. obligations. And so if you can make more investment returns, it's less of a tax bill for the taxpayers. And wow. that's where the outperformance comes in. So 
there does tend to be some political noise about high fees and private equity mm-hmm. and so forth. But what they're missing is they, they have to look at the net net returns. Right. You know, you pay for what you get. And if you pay higher fees, you should expect higher returns. And mm-hmm. that's what private equity has delivered over time. So you've just answered one of the potential, you know, criticisms of private equity. I remember another one. I think a lot of people across the country were were probably introduced to private equity when Mitt Romney was running for president. You remember that? Yes. And people were talking about what his career is. And I remember one pretty cynical view of him where they said, um, this is the guy who bought your dad's company and fired your dad. So right. t- talk to me about how you're, you used the analogy earlier. You, it's like kind of like buying an old house. You got to fix it up. When you make these companies better, you make uh, you know their personnel structure more efficient, which means some people get fired. Talk to me about that, and, and how does that affect you as the person you know initiating some of that process? Sure. So that's in, like like a lot of caricatures, right? It's, it's kind of grossly inaccurate. Um, right. Where back in the old days, yes, in the very dawn of private equity 30, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. you, know, you could buy things much cheaper and then people would sort of just sell off a bunch of assets, fire a ton of people, flip mm-hmm. them, make a quick buck. Okay. Right? That was somewhat common, not, not the rule, but instances of that. And that's where I think some of the genesis of this is private equity's asset strippers, you know, come mm-hmm. in and just fire everybody and yeah. hollow the place out and flip it for a quick buck. Yeah. Well. That sounds a little too good to be true, right? <laughs> because, I mean, in today's world, really, can right. you do that? Right. Is everyone so dumb that you can just walk in and, like, flip the things in super quick and not put any money and right. make a great return? Not plus, really. Plus, how, how would you even, um, I mean, that would just kill morale so fast that you're not helping the company. It just doesn't work. I mean, private equity is a massively competitive industry now, so you, you just can't make money like that anymore. What you have to do is you have to make better quality assets. And... And then that's how people, somebody's going to decide to pay you, whether that's the public markets, because, you know, shareholders aren't stupid. They're, they have a very high bar for what companies can go public. You know, you have to have a healthy, growing business that's, you know, well-sustained uh, competitive position uh, to be able to go public. Um, corporate buyers, they have a very high bar as well. They don't want to buy something that's a wreck, right? They right. want to buy something that's growing and healthy and well-positioned. And, and same thing with other private equity firms. So at the end of the day, you have to create, real, you have to put in the hard work, right? Yeah. It's not like you can buy an old house, slap some paint on the outside, mm. and fool everybody. Right. Right? That's essentially what that argument is. Right. And you can't do that. Now, at the end of the day, that process of improvement when it comes to companies, yes, a lot of times there is some change that needs to happen there. Uh, maybe they've been misrun. The cost structure is too high. They've been mispositioned. So you need to maybe sell off certain parts of the business that aren't doing so well to focus on what is. Redirect your proceeds. You do maybe need to slim down the workforce to pull back to then be able to grow. But the ultimate objective is always to to grow and make the company better. So it's like, you know, um, I I feel for people and Mm -hmm. and these things do happen and sometimes they go wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be Mm -hmm. sure, there are bankruptcies. There's, you know. A Toys R Us is a is a current example of that. So mm-hmm. and there's a real human toll to that. Um, but at the end of the day, when you look at private equity, there are losses inside there. There are a very small minority of the invested capital. Typically, ten percent, fifteen percent of your invested capital you're going to lose money on. The rest of it you're going to make money on. And so that kind of gives yeah. you a ratio of yes, some things go bad. Right. Life isn't perfect. But yeah. overall, as an asset class, it does perform pretty well. And I'm thinking too in the overall economy. 
the more companies that are efficiently running, the better for everybody. Right? Exactly, because it um, to be inefficient is not sustainable. Right. So at the end of the day, you could say we, you know, we're not going to sell anything off. We're not going to close any plants. We're not going to mm-hmm. lay off any workers. Well, at the end of the day, the runway is going to run out, yeah. and you're going to go right over the cliff, and um, and then everybody's going to lose. Hmm. So it's better to try to protect as many people as you can, make those painful choices, yeah. try to try to be humane about it, and help mm-hmm. help workers out and stuff. But if we have a healthy, growing economy, you got right. a sustainable situation for everyone's families. I'm sitting here trying to picture the United States economy without private equity. I mean, you've just articulated some very important roles that it plays, pensions being one of them, but also the overall efficiency of the economy. It's, I mean, I'm making the argument for you, but right. <laughs> to tell us wh- how important private equity is for the overall economy. Yeah, it is massively important. Um, you know, just one one note is that my I manage my mother's pension money ah, in a way. Wow. She's an employee. She was an employee yeah. of the state of Virginia. She's a pensioner now. Uh-huh. State of Virginia is an investor, so wow. Um, you know, it's it's personal. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so private equity. I don't have the figures at hand, but private equity as an asset class, you know, the number of employees in private equity backed businesses probably goes into the millions right. in the United States, wow. and. You know, the investment, the capital investment in the businesses that the companies make goes into the billions for sure. I mean, it's a massive amount of money that's being invested in these businesses, trying to make them better, trying to grow the number of employees and so forth. And um, so it's an, it is a very important part of the economic engine in the country. So not only is it is it helping the overall economy, but it's also generating wealth among those who are in the industry. Right. Yeah. So you talked earlier about coming to a... a, a a place in your life where you had to have a personal relationship with Jesus right. before we get into your philanthropic work and how that's maybe impacted that. Tell me about your, how does your faith affect your, your day to day life and work? Well, it's, it's always a, uh, it's a process, right? And, um, you know, I think one of the things, things can be simple, but they can be really hard. So mm-hmm. I think one of the simple uh, actions that we need to take as you know people with faith is to is to make the time to prioritize that time with with Jesus right mm-hmm. which is in prayer in the scriptures in you know kind of doing devotionals and study time with other believers and and prioritize that and push other things to the side and then keep doing that throughout the day in small ways and try to you know continually lean on on his presence in our lives and so um, that's, that's something I try to focus on a lot. When you say time with other believers, um, do you have other, you have like brothers and sisters in Christ, um, in private equity that you are in relationship with? You know, I, I have one that's, uh, in the business world. So mm-hmm. I have a mentor, uh, mm-hmm. who's mentored me for better part of 10 years, ever since I got saved. And, uh, we spent a lot of time on the phone. He lives in another part of the country, but he used to run a organization, uh, for Christian CEOs. Okay. And so for some reason they decided to let me into it. I have no idea why because I'm not a CEO, but, <laughs> but they're, you know, uh, they're wonderful people. And so he's from the business world and, and there are a lot of, of Christians on wall street and there's some mm-hmm. different groups that, that minister to those folks. Okay. So let's talk about your foundation. Yeah. Children of fallen patriots. Right. So children of fallen patriots has a mission to provide college scholarships to military children who lost a parent in line of duty. And my wife and I started it uh, from our rented townhouse <laughs> many years ago. 
um, in, in honor of Sergeant Delaney Gibbs. Uh, he and I were in the same unit in Panama, and unfortunately he got killed yeah. in the fighting. And that was uh, mm. five days before yeah. Christmas, 1989, and he had yeah. a baby daughter due in March, mm. and he was only 21. Mm. So that was a tough one. I didn't know him personally, but he was the only soldier in our unit that got killed. Yeah. And so that just really stuck with me in terms of what's going to happen you yeah. know, to that little girl who's going to yeah. take care of her. Yeah. And there's thousands more like her, obviously from combat with the wars, but training accidents, illness, suicide now. Right. Um, it's a dangerous profession, so there's a lot of people that get left behind. So that's why we, we started the foundation to honor those fallen service members in the best way that we knew how, which I think would be investing in the people they love most in the world. That's beautiful. So you, you helped out that little girl, but tell me how did the foundation grow and where is it today? Yeah, so yeah, Cynthia and I started it. Um, we uh, It's funny, she tells a story where we didn't own a couch at the time. We had like, uh, I don't know, her old college couch that we bought some thrift store or something mm-hmm. and, and we put money into it. And, and not, that, not that that makes us so great or anything. We just, you know, it really did start from nothing. And so, so I just want to, I want to make sure people yeah. hear this because her, Cynthia's experience was you came to her and said, we're going to put all this money into this little girl's education fund someday. And yeah. she's looking at what she's sitting on going, but we need a new couch. Yeah. She's like, we have money. Oh, I, I need to buy a couch. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's been a team effort and I, and I, I, I she's been, you know, a massive part of, of the growth. But, but since then we've been able to grow it. There are about 20,000 students, 20,000 children over the last 35 years have lost someone mm-hmm. in the line of duty. I say about because nobody knows exactly how mm-hmm. many there are, mm-hmm. which is part of the problem. The information is kind of in different places and no one tracks it holistically. So that's one of our goals is to find mm-hmm. all 20,000 of those students. Wow. And so we made a good start. We found 8,000 of them so far. Wow. And that's a, a big collection, I think, is maybe as, as much as anybody else has ever found. So our goal is to find all of them. On the other hand, they also need money for college. So yeah. there are government programs to help these mm-hmm. families. It does not cover the full cost of college. Mm-hmm. It leaves, a, on average, about $8,000 a year per student, 32000 for four years. And so wind that all together, it's about a half a billion dollar total need yeah. is out there. So that's a solvable number. There are charities mm-hmm. that raise multiples of that every year. Right. So I think it's something that we can achieve in our lifetime that's never been done, which is kind of staggering when you think about it. It's just the people who gave the most for wow. our country, who enable our way of life, all of our freedoms that mm. we take, you know, that are part of our fabric, our life that we take for granted. No one's ever made sure that all of their kids were taken care of. So that's that's our mission. And so we've been able to provide about $25 million in total support to those students and funded over 1200 of them to go to college close to 500 now have graduated all are or shortly will be completely debt-free so that flips a massive negative of awesome david living without a parent when you describe it the way you just described it it's one of those total no-brainers and i love the origin story of it you saw somebody who died in combat, and you thought you weren't thinking selfishly all about yourself and all about how you're going to get by personally and even, you know, getting your wife the new couch, but you were thinking of others, and you were thinking of others who were thinking of others, right? The people who were serving their country so that we can have our way of life. That, to me, has the story of Jesus written all over it. You know, he didn't self um, protect and self advance. You know, he was always thinking of others, even at the cost of his own life. 
And so is that part of your motivation? Is your, it sounds to me, the timeline here, maybe you started Children Fallen Patriots before you fully came to Christ? Yeah, yeah, uh, quite a while, actually, in 2002, before mm-hmm. in 2009 was when we got saved. But, yeah, I think originally it was not the reason. You know, mm-hmm. faith wasn't the reason that we started it. It was out of just a desire to do something about it. Uh, it was out of a desire to to serve somehow, especially when the wars broke out. We actually started mm-hmm. this before the war broke out, before nine one one, and then yeah. formally got our papers a few months later. But uh, And then when the war broke out, you know, my friends are going downrange over and over and over again. And I had a lot of guilt about that. Mm. Um, you know, here I am living this cushy life in Greenwich, Connecticut, and my friends are going to Iraq, you know, over wow. and over and getting, you know, hurt and stuff. And so, you know, we wrestle with that. And, uh, um, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about reenlisting. And I was in my mid-30s at that point, and Cynthia said, you know, that's great, I'll support you, whatever you do. I admire it, where you're coming from, but just recognize, you know, you're mid-30s. You know, you're not kicking indoors in, in <laughs> Afghanistan, right? You're going to be guarding baggage carousel number three in LaGuardia right. Airport right. with the other old man, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't worthwhile. But uh, anyway, so this was a way for us to serve, right? Yep. And that's my the point of my story is that, sure. and I say that to people uh, who support our mission as well. A lot yep. of people, you know, felt that call to serve. They want to do something to support the military. They don't really know how because such a right. small portion of our population serves. A lot of people don't even know anyone who served. Mm-hmm. And then when you hear about this need, they want to do something about it. And so this is a yep. way to, like one of the generals who spoke at our event one time said, not every patriot wears a uniform. And so you can serve your country by serving these sure. families. And that was a part of it. And, and West Point also teaches that, you know, you got to take care of the troops. And, uh, right. you know, you're an officer, you eat last, the troops eat first. Right. You make sure that they're, you know, they got warm, yeah. dry, safe place to sleep. And if they don't, you don't either. And and so that was part of it as well in terms of wanting to do something to, to again, serve. Again, self-sacrificial love and care for others. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know. I, I wouldn't claim that. but <laughs> Well, let's talk about something you said a minute ago. You said that here you were living your cushy life in Greenwich, Connecticut. Yep. But then you went on to articulate how everybody can serve. You, you mentioned, I think it's been $25 million that the foundation has been able to fund the Children of Fallen Patriots. So um, it sounds to me like you're uh, uh, providing a platform for people who live in this cushy life, Hmm. who maybe make a lot of money in private equity or other fields of Wall Street, and you're providing a platform for them to serve through generosity. Well, yeah, it's it's funny. I think what Cynthia said, you know, that joke about the baggage carousel isn't to denigrate the people who are right. back guarding the airport. It's yeah. more to make the point that there's different ways to serve, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what her point was, is that, you know, you can serve doing this. Yeah. And this and that's what we finally realized after a while, is that God had put us in a perfect place to do this mission. Like, that actually was why I think he put me on the earth, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had the West Point experience. I had all these military connections, which are very helpful in trying to help, you know, sure. execute our mission. We're living in Greenwich, Connecticut, where there's a lot of people who've been very blessed, but they're very, very philanthropic and want to give back. Yeah. And, you know, the connections on Wall Street as well, the same thing. The private equity experience, which is all about trying to grow businesses and make them better. So you learn a lot about how to try to manage a business, which is very important in, in the philanthropic side as well. Um, mm. Not just the delivery of care but you got to run it like a business sure to do well over time and so all of that kind of perfectly worked yep. together and that's what we finally realized is that why that's where god wanted me to serve not necessarily yeah. some someplace else and then 
you know, after we got saved in 09, probably a year or two later, sort of dawned on us. I think it was Cynthia said, you know, we've never actually turned this over to the Lord. Mm. And so we both prayed about it and said, actually, Lord, now we finally realize, like, we've been stumbling around all this time. This is actually what you want us to be doing. And so this is yours. Like, tell us what you show us, what you want us to do. Mm. And that's when we saw things just just take off in an mm. amazing way. I love that story. I love the way the Holy Spirit orchestrates things. I mean, when you have, you just basically named a bunch of different puzzle pieces that he put together. Right. You know, when you were a, a plebe at West Point, you didn't know that was one big puzzle piece going right. into this bigger picture. Exactly. And that's really what I think calling looks like for people. You know, even the hard seasons of their lives or even their mistakes that they've made right. to look back and say, look what God was doing. He was telling a bigger story yeah. through all of this. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. And I've made a lot of mistakes and mm-hmm. learned a lot from those and they've been a big part of my yeah. motivation as well. And um, so God can you, has... Can you think of one you would want to share? Like something you learned from? A mistake? Oh, I don't know. There's probably too many to <laughs> think about. But, you know, but, but you know, you just... You sort of um, it drives you to do better, right? And 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 for me, gives me more of a sense of humility, which is you know everyone needs that, and yeah. me in particular, I need that, and so um, that's valuable, and I'm I'm grateful yeah. for that too. Yeah, well said. Now we've talked about your faith in the business world. You've talked about your faith in your foundation. What about your household? You've mentioned your wife, but are you guys raising up kids to think like this? And tell me how. Yeah. Well, so we've been, you know, really blessed to have four kids. Uh, they're uh, our our oldest is a is a plebe at West Point, as I said, first year at West Point. Our yeah. second son is a um, senior in high school, and uh, our twin daughters are sophomores in in high school. And so, yeah, faith has always been super important to us. And, and, um, you know, when we started out, we're kind of, as I mentioned, kind of going to church and not really, um, sort of having a, a a joy in the faith. And, um, I think as our kids got older, we realized that we needed to be in an environment where they were being spoken to in a way that resonated with them. Mm -hmm. Because what I did want to have happen was, you know, same thing that happened to me mm. and sitting there with my eyes glazing over, not really understanding what the preacher's talking about. Mm. And, and then I just, you know, have this terrible taste in my mouth and walk away mm. for 20 years and go yeah. off the rails, you yeah. know, which is what happened. So, um, so then we, we've been blessed to be able to find, we go to Hillsong church, mm-hmm. which is, you know, wonderful place that, uh, is, you know, very lively environment where, uh, the kids can, can really resonate with a it's sort of very focused on young people. Mm-hmm. It's very lively service. It's great music, but then and then the preaching is it's it, they're just preaching on Jesus, and it's mm-hmm. like it's really a live faith. And there's people with you know full sleeve tattoos that were heroin addicts that got saved and telling their mm-hmm. stories, and mm-hmm. it's it's incredible. So it's made a massive difference in mm-hmm. in the life of our kids. Mm-hmm. Now, when they were little. I don't know when your kids were born. I can't think of it. I can't do the math right now. But it, when you fully came to Christ in 09, did you already have the kids? We did, yes. Yeah. So our oldest was born in 98, and the twins were born in 02. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. yeah, so even from their earliest ages, you guys were... Tell me about, like, at-home discipleship. Do you read the Bible around the dinner table? I mean, what happens? Yeah, you know, um, one of the biggest things that we did was um, we decided to reorder our life mm-hmm. in the sense of making room to have these type of discussions because mm-hmm. we got on the treadmill of the travel sports mm-hmm. 
as an example. And I distinctly remember there was one Sunday morning, eight o'clock in the morning in March or something, pouring rain, freezing cold, like in the forties, the boys are, you know, in this tournament, they're not really playing. I'm standing there like tired, stressed out, miss my wife and my family going like, why exactly am I here? Mm. I'm going to be here all day. I'm not going to see my family. We have to go home. We're going to be all stressed out about getting homework done. You know, we don't have any time to just do anything. And we came home. We said, you know what? This is insane. There's a reason why the Lord said, have a Sabbath Observe day. The Sabbath. And it was sort of like, duh, like yeah. one of those moments. It's almost and like God knows what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's so good at stuff. Um, and, and you know, look, that travel's the one I pick on. I mean, other people do it, and we don't, sure. we don't have kids that are going to be in the NFL or anything. Mm-hmm. So it's easy for us to decide, mm-hmm. you know what, we're not doing that. Sunday's for a family. We're going to go to church. We're going to have quiet time. We'll take a nap. We'll play a board game. We'll talk about, we'll have a long meal. We'll just chill. Mm-hmm. And no one even do their homework, please. You know, get your stuff wow. done on Saturday. I'll get my work done on Saturday. Play your sports during the week at school. Yeah. And of course, that changes when varsity comes around and all that stuff. But, yeah. but the point being that we just really made a big effort to cut out a lot of things from our life. Um, that would be a lot of fun for the kids to do. You know, they love doing travel sports and stuff. But it's a lesson you just have to say, you know, this... Family comes first and faith comes first. So coming back around, you know, yeah. we I can't say we do a whole lot of Bible studying, but we do sure. do a lot of talking, you know, yeah, about yeah. what yeah. we're learning, what our yeah. life experience is. We text each other a lot with, mm. you know, verses or devotionals and things so like, like that. Like a group text for the family? Yeah, kind of exactly. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah it's fun. You know, I want to just highlight something you just pointed out because I think it's so important. You talked about observing the Sabbath. Right. And I tell people till I'm blue in the face about this amazing biblical principle of taking one day off every week and not doing work and being together as a family and worshiping. And oftentimes people look at me like I have three heads right. and they can't figure out like, don't you know, it takes seven days a week to be successful. Right. And I'm looking at a man right now who you are extremely successful in the business world. You're successful in the philanthropic world and you have a, a healthy Christ-centered family as well, and yet you do it in six days a week, you know? And I remember I was working on my doctor at one time, and somebody pulled me aside, and they said, Nathan, I can't figure it out. You seem to be pretty good at at being a student in your doctoral work. You seem to be a pretty good pastor, and you seem to be a pretty good dad. Um, And I know you keep talking about the Sabbath. How do you get everything done in six days? And I said to him, God works it out. Yep. And I don't know. I mean, he fuels me up on the Sabbath. That's part of it. You know, it's very simple. You you take a day of rest and I'm ready to do the work on the other six days. But I think there's something even beyond that Mm -hmm. where he supplies what we need when we order our week like that. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced the same thing? Oh, 100%. 100%. I'm a huge believer in that, that, you know, I think God honors when we sacrifice and put him first. And Mm -hmm. like you said, he just makes the road smooth before you somehow. And and I think that part of it is that we're rested and refreshed and, you know, we can kind of charge into the week as opposed to drag ourselves yep. into the week like yep. I used to. And even throughout the week where, you know, as I learned from my mentor to try to just even when you go into a meeting, Lord, show me what I need to do. Amen. What do I need to focus on? What do I need to learn? Like, what should I say here? And it just feels like it's efficiency over effort yeah. in, in a way. And hmm. even on the train into work, I used to, you use that to read emails and kind of read the paper and just get ready for the day. And, and he was saying, you know, why don't you try? And I would sort of try to fit in my devotionals into right. 10 minutes when I was in the tunnel between 125th and Grand Central. Hmm. And 
He's like, why don't you flip that around? Why don't you start on that? I'm like, oh, I can't really. I got to get, you know, I'm not going to have enough time. And now it's where it's kind of the complete reverse. Wow. But, you know, you just, I'm sort of tuned into what I need. I haven't had any issues with it and yeah. in terms of from a business perspective. Sure. But yeah. then I have that quiet time on the train to do that. And um, you know, I'm not perfect. I can't say I do it every day. But, but it's amazing yeah. that, yeah. yes, he does figure out a way to, to make the road smooth before us. Sometimes the seemingly inefficient... Um, you know, counter uh, instinctual thing is actually the thing that blesses us the most. Right. And it's just obedience to what God calls us to. Right. Exactly. That's great. You know, I, I didn't anticipate this conversation be, uh, leading to Sabbath observance, right. but I'm delighted that it did because that's something that I really care so much about. And I'm, I'm just so glad that you shared that with us. I'm a huge believer in it because especially in today's world with the busyness factor has just never yeah. been more intense and social media and electronics and it's the other thing we try to just on Sundays as much as possible, you know, put the phones down when we're having a meal, put them in the center of the table and nice. my hands twitching as much as the kids are, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. But, uh, that quiet time is, you yeah. know, Lord's instructions are timeless. Sometimes I, you know, I talk with a ton of people in this culture, obviously. And sometimes I see people who are totally stressed out and they, and they're just trying to get ahead and things aren't making sense. And um, what I want to tell them, and I have to ease into this, but what I want to tell them right off the bat is, you know, observing the Sabbath would actually make almost all, most of these problems go away for you. Yep. But I can't say that right away because it, that, they're just not ready to hear that. Mm -hmm. Like, you're telling me I'm supposed to do everything I'm supposed to do in one fewer days a week. Mm -hmm. um, but once you get there, you really do see the fruit of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to ask um, just a, a final question. Sure. And I want you just to think about, uh, I would love to just get to know you a little bit personally outside of all these topics wall street finance all this stuff tell me what do you read or listen to that's that's not related to any of these things like what do you kind of take in for fun um let's see well i i honestly i love listening to joel osteen so i just mm -hmm. i'm kind of violating your rule but <laughs> when i'm driving around in the car i do really love listening to that i yeah. do i love listening to hillsong which mm -hmm. is great i love listening to country music yeah. So that's a lot of fun. There, there so you go. Music as well. So, <laughs> uh, and then reading, you know, I love to read. I read a ton of uh, military history. Yeah. Um, biographies are fascinating. You know, mm -hmm. people have lived lives that you couldn't even make it up, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. the things that they've done. Uh, some historical novels, you know, are a lot of fun as well to kind of fill in the cracks and times when we don't know exactly everything that happened. But um, so I'd say that's what I do. I do I do love to hunt as well, okay. which is non-PC, but uh, hey. Where do you go for that? You if go you to... eat meat or wear leather, you're hunting too. Seriously. You're, just, <laughs> you're not doing it yourself. <laughs> um, you know, kind of all over. We, I love to go out west, so, you mm -hmm. know, where you can do the wide open country and kind of spot and stalk, and it's a real challenge. It's, it's a lot of fun. We do, do a lot with the boys. Do you get the meat boys. shipped home so you can eat it yep. here? Yep, wow. for sure. So we're, um, we're eating a deer that I took last year, and had an elk before that, and uh, it's it's been a wonderful experience to do that with the family. I'll bet. As well. So you kind of get out and appreciate God's majesty in, mm. in a different way. In the backcountry, okay. it's, you know, Wyoming. It's, it's just yeah. incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been uh, very enriching and edifying for me, and I, I hope that it is for all the listeners as well. Thank you for your time. Oh, well, thank you, Nathan. I appreciate it. God bless. You've been listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. On the next episode, 
you know, it, it's a blessing in disguise. You know, it allows me to step back and say, hey, look, you know, was I was I getting too focused on this? Was was I hyper focused and on on the sense of you know wanting to be successful and wanting to do well and wanting to impress my superiors and, and you know trying to to be overly successful to an extent where you know it clouds. Um, your Christianity, it clouds your faith um, to an extent. And so, you know, being able to take that step back and be like, hey, you know, like, let's let's find a place that, you know, God's going to lead me to and, and ultimately give me, you know, a more, call it rounded experience. Mm-hmm.